0: The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. My opening statement this morning might be offensive at first. I love when I say that because when I do, everyone pays attention. Everyone. Everyone. And my wife just shakes her head like, oh. So before you're all offended at the statement I'm about to make, just know it might get worse for you later. So this is easy. It's easy. Hear me out. If I were to describe our church this morning, I've said this in the past to some folks. I think I say this more often than maybe I should. But this church, this congregation, is a mutt. Isn't that nice? A mutt. You know what a mutt is? What? Sheep. Some city folk here. (laughs) Who said that? You say sheep? Okay. Are you on medication? <laughs> okay. All right. Very good. Yeah. It's a mix, right? This church is a German chihuahua, golden doodle, lab, boxer, poodle mix. Right? We have in our congregation people from every walk of life. And I have to tell you, it's a beautiful thing. You should just sometime take a moment and look around at the people in this congregation, it is quite a diverse group. But not only that, we have people from different religious backgrounds as well. We have, among us, Independent Baptists, Regular Baptists. We have Brethren from that background, Reformed, Pentecostal, United, Presbyterian, Mennonite, Old Colony Mennonites, um, Catholic backgrounds. Who did I miss? What's that? Anglicans, right? Any others? Right? Don't be ashamed. No. Hawaiians? Oh. <laughs> we have Hawaiians from the Alliance Church. I'm sorry, Mary. That's I'm almost 50 now. I can't hear a thing. And so that's not you. Alliance, should have been there as well. So the point is that we have these different people from very different backgrounds. And yet it works. It works. And, And I think there are two reasons why it works. Number one is in this place, there is a real sense of belonging, a sense of family. Um... Without family, we are prone to loneliness, anger, depression, despair, and even overcome by life itself. But the church of Jesus Christ is truly a family of families made up of different individuals. And in this place, if you take the time to look around, you will see every age group imaginable. It is a strong, intergenerational-rooted church, which means we can develop strong relationships here. We can help build our marriages and raise our children. And so it works because I do believe that there's a real sense of belonging here. This is a family. And if you are visiting today, you might not get this, but if you've been here long enough, part of the reason you're here is because you feel like this is your family. It's a good thing. But it's not enough. It's not enough. There also must be purpose. Purpose. Because this family, the church, has a purpose. And the purpose is to glorify the God of heaven. The beauty about this mutt is that as the world looks into the doors of this church, They can see the backgrounds. They can see the people. They can see the different social structures and statuses, the economical statuses, the the educational statuses, and say, wow, look what God is doing there. How great is that God? It's our purpose. But in order for that to work, we must be established in our faith. Coming from so so many different backgrounds and ideas, We must make sure that we keep the main thing, the main thing that cannot change. The writer of Hebrews calls it the first principles of the oracles of God. The things that really matter must stay primary in our church. A matter of fact, Paul spent a significant time making sure that churches were established in their faith. Think of the life of Paul. I mean, he would set up a church in a town, would go, find another one, and then he'd go back through to encourage and to establish believers in the faith. He then would write letters to them to instruct them on how to live this life and understand the first principles of the Christian faith. A matter of fact, the New Testament that we hold is exactly that. It was written to believers so they would understand the writings and teachings of our Savior, and that they would be established in their faith. We must get this right, or none of it can or will work. You can belong to anything, but that's not the church. The church has a purpose. The church has a purpose of glorifying God and making sure that we as God's people are established in the truth. And so this morning, as we gear our hearts toward the most sacred celebration that we do in our church, the Lord's table, I want us to understand what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning as a visitor, I would just ask you to listen with an open heart and an open mind as we try to convey to you the truth of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And that you just listen. And if you're here all the time, my prayer is this, that you will not grow weary of hearing what you've never heard before. Sometimes we say, yeah, I got that, I know, I understand. But we don't sometimes, or don't understand it fully. And so I want to talk to you this morning about what it means to be a disciple of Christ, a follower of him, one who learns his teaching, who's established in the faith. And so this morning, I want to be clear on just two things. Number one, the proclamation of Christ. What is this all about? What is the message of the church? And then the procedures of the church. And And I know that the church has been called to do a lot of things, right, to read the word, to pray, to fast, to give, to care for one another. But a church that is truly a church must do the the two ordinances that they were commanded to do, and that is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so, this morning, let's begin with the proclamation. The proclamation. What is it today that makes this place and all true believing churches different? It is the proclamation. It is what we call The good news. It is the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, you need to know that as the church was formed, as Christ taught his message, as he um, sent out his disciples, when he died, was buried, and rose again, he once again sent them out for this proclamation. And on the day of Pentecost, These very disciples who were terrified of their own lives, they were cowards, they were running scared, the Spirit of God comes upon them, they begin to preach, and they preach the gospel, the proclamation, and when they do, thousands the first day, 3,000 people come to Christ. We don't know all the numbers, but we do believe that in Jerusalem, the early church had up to 40,000 converts, maybe more. It's unbelievable. But all of those converts were Jewish. They were Jews waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the message. And then something happened. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision from God. He's got to get something straightened out in his life on what it means to be a Jew and what he thinks of himself and other people. And God teaches him a lesson about what is clean and what is not clean. And God says, Peter, what I've made clean, don't you dare call unclean. And he's talking about the Gentiles. And so Peter then gets a visit from Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And and he shows up, doesn't know why he's there. Cornelius brings all of his Gentile family and friends, and they're sitting down, and Peter shows up and says, I'm here, and what? And then he realizes through Cornelius that They're waiting to hear, as Gentiles now, the proclamation. Now, this morning, I don't know that there's any Jewish folks here. I know we have some Hawaiians, but maybe not Jewish people here. All right? We're Gentiles. This proclamation is important for us to hear. Because this is what, when Peter has an opportunity to say to the Gentile world what it means to be a follower of Christ, Here's what he says in Acts chapter 10, starting at verse number 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel Preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word I say you know. Which was published throughout all Judea. And began from Galilee. After the baptism. Which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. With the Holy Ghost. And with power. Who went about doing good. And healing all that were oppressed. Of the devil. For God was with him. And. We are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people, and to testify that he is it is which was ordained of God to be judge of the quick, the living, and the dead. To him give all the prophets witness that, throughout, that through his name, whosoever believeth in him should or shall receive remission of sins. And so here's the first time that Peter talks to a Gentile audience to tell them this is the proclamation. This is what you must know. This is what you must believe. This is the message. This is the first, first principle. This is it. Here's what he says. Jesus Christ was sent to Israel by God. He was predicted, and you, you look at the Old Testament, over 300 prophecies telling us this is the Messiah, this is what he looks like, This is where he'll be born. This is where he'll come out of. This is what he'll do. This is what will happen to him. 300, pointing to Christ. He was the longed-for Messiah. Then he says, understand that Jesus did good. He he was preaching. He was teaching. He was healing. He He was giving confirmation of who he said he was. He then says, the Jews, by way of the Romans, crucified him on a cross. And the Romans are important because the Romans knew how to kill people. It wasn't like, I'm not sure if he's dead. The Romans knew how to put men to death. They killed him. He was crucified. Agonizing, torturous death. And then he says, three days later... God raised him up again. The tomb could not hold him. The apostles saw him, and they say, We ate with him, right? So, this is not some group hallucination. That doesn't happen. People don't hallucinate in groups. They sat down and ate with him, and he invited them to take their fingers and put them in the wounds of his hands and his sides. He was alive. He wasn't a spirit. He had flesh. They were eating with him. And then Jesus ordained them to preach his message. This message of the good news. And then Peter reminds them that this same Jesus who was dead and alive and alive forevermore will be the judge of all the living and the dead. That means everyone in all times, in all places, in all of history, will stand before this Christ who came the first time to be spit upon and rejected never, ever to happen again. He will return. He will rule and reign. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And all who believe this message their sins are forgiven. They are reconciled back to God. We as human beings are not equipped to deal with guilt. And we try to hide our guilt and that pain in lots of things. in pleasure, in distractions, in food, sex, in drugs, in some cause. Your guilt and my guilt, when it all boils down, is because we are out of sorts with the God of heaven. And there's nothing that can take away that guilt. There is nothing that can wash me clean but the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is the proclamation. That you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what road you've traveled or what side of the tracks you were born on, no matter what situations you have faced, there is a God in heaven who loved you and sent his son to take your place, to die for your sins. The wrath of God poured upon his head so that by faith and repentance coming to him, I don't have to bear that anymore. He has saved me. That's the proclamation. And that's what we believe. And that is the only message that will save your soul. It is not a church. It is not an organization. It is not your good works. It is not your baptism. It's none of those things. There is one name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. It's Jesus Christ. So, if you're wondering this morning, that's a proclamation. It is Christ and Christ alone. And so Peter makes his proclamation to the Gentiles. And here's what happens. They believe it. but They absolutely believe it. The Spirit of God fills them, if you read 44 through the rest of the chapter. And they are baptized. Come to Christ. They believe it. The Spirit of God now resides within them. And the first thing they do is... They are baptized. This is the procedure. One of the two we'll talk about this morning. Baptism. What does it mean? Well, it literally means to immerse. It means to dip. It means to dunk. It means to go under the water. There's there's no way around it. Here's what happened to me as a kid. Right? Anybody had that happen as a kid? <sighs> right? I got sprinkled. You know what, as a kid, I had no idea what they are doing to me other than messing up my hair. And I had pretty hair back then, long, flowing. My, my parents did not have me baptized. When the second child came by, my brother, they thought it would be a good idea. And by that time, I was three years old. And so I was sprinkled. I had no concept of what was going on. None. And there's no way that this did anything for my sins. Anything. Because this does nothing. I actually like doing this. It's what? Oh, it's Dan's glass. This is what Dan drinks out of. Right? Listen to me. And that's how foolish that is. To think that baptism is going to wash away my sin? Or as a child, I'm going to understand this? No, these people trusted Christ and were baptized. And baptism has always been symbolic. Even before the disciples, it meant becoming a follower of a teacher. It, It identified them with a new way of life. And so we understand that as believers, it identifies us with a teacher, the Lord Jesus. And when we're baptized, it identifies us with a new way of life. And for us, the symbolism is powerful. It shows the death and burial of Jesus Christ and then the fact that he rose again out of the tomb three days later. And for you and I who identify with him, it reminds us that that's not the end of our Christian life. It's the beginning. Because we come out ready to walk in newness of life. And this event, this baptism by immersion, identifying, is all over the New Testament. You cannot get away from it. Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch. What forbids me? Go down in the water. I trusted Christ, baptized. Here in Acts chapter 10, we have the story of Cornelius and his household. What must I do to be saved? They're saved, are baptized. Acts chapter 16, the the Philippian jailer trusted Christ, baptized. People are baptized to identify with Christ and his message. What they say is this. I believe that he died, was buried, rose again, and is my Savior. And they identify with a new community. The early church. When they would go down to the river like the Jordan, and the church would gather together, they baptize this new convert. When they came out of the water, you know what happened? That community embraced them. I mean, physically embraced them and embrace them as a community. What they were saying is, listen, you are now identifying with a new family. It's still true today. In Jewish and Muslim homes, you can say, I think I believe Jesus, and it's okay. Not in all, but in some. But the minute you follow him in baptism, what you've just said is, I believe him enough to identify with his person and his teaching and with a new family, the church. Baptism was never an isolated act separated from the church. Never. It is the doorway into the church. We're saved, baptized, and added to the church. This is a command of Christ, and we do it to please him. So listen carefully. A church that doesn't require baptism or an unbaptized believer who doesn't want it is a contradiction in terms. So a church that doesn't require for believers to be baptized or a believer who's not interested is a contradiction in terms because this is gateway into the community. Identifying with Christ Identifying with his people. And then we have Lord's Supper. And what we'll spend the rest of our time on this morning. If baptism is a one-time initiatory rite, just do this once. I believe, I'm trusting, I'm identifying, I'm connected with the community. It's like a wedding day. Right? You Get married once. When you're married, you don't have to get married every week. You're married. Lord's Supper is a continuing of that relationship. I'm renewing my love, my commitment. I am affirming. It's more like an anniversary. We do this over and over again. So to become a disciple of Jesus Christ means this. I first believe in the person and work of Christ. I publicly baptized. I join the community of faith. And then I receive his teachings. And the reason I point that out is because the only act of worship in all of the New Testament that we are given specific instructions about is this one. The Bible is clear on what we're supposed to do this morning. And people have been doing it for 2,000 years. It's an awesome thought that this teaching, millions upon millions of believers, have been doing this and honoring the Lord's table. So let's look at this morning, Second 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's what Paul tells us in verse number 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among us and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, When you come together to eat, carry one for another. If any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. Paul lays it out clearly here. We are remembering the sacrifice of our Savior. We cannot lose the significance and the purpose of this awesome commemoration. It is a time to stop, to remember to examine, and to renew. This commemoration is health and life to the church. It's important. We don't tack it on. We don't forget about it. We don't nilly-willy, I will do it twice. A this is important for the church. It is health. It is strength. It is life. There's a purpose. We stop everything and remember, we proclaim the Lord's death. We acknowledge that Jesus Christ died for not him or her or mom and dad, but he died for me. Christ died for me. You ought to wait and listen for a second and let that sink into your heart and your mind that God, through Christ Jesus, died for you. And not in your loveliness, and not in your beauty, and not in your righteousness. We have none before the presence of a holy God. In spite of our sins, Christ died for us. And we acknowledge our own death with him, buried with him in baptism, raised in newness of life. In remembering, we process the ramifications of the cross in our own lives. This is important. We talked this morning in Sunday school about the gospel. And, and if you're in this church, you will hear that word maybe once a week. The gospel. But the gospel has ramifications for all of us. The cross means something after I repent. It means something to me as a man, as a woman, as a mother, as a father, as a grandparent, as a teenager. It means something as a single adult, a boss, an employer, an employer. Because the cross of Christ changes everything. I once was lost and now I'm found. It should change every facet of our lives. And it is a fresh returning to the Lord. Here today as we hold the bread, as we look at the cup, we must think about Christ and his sacrifice. And in so doing, we surrender ourselves to him. If one died for me, and I should thus judge that I was dead, and that he died for me, I ought to then live for him, present myself to him. And this morning, as we come to this altar to honor his life and death, we're invited to die ourselves. I'm talking about physically. I'm talking about dying to my own desires, my own dreams my own ambitions, my own future, my flesh, to say, Lord, I'm identifying with your death and now with your life. And so we remember today, and I encourage you, be silent before him. Feel the bread. Look at the cup. Remember. And then we renew our love for one another. This service makes it mandatory for the church of Jesus Christ to be right with one another. You don't come to the table hating on brother so-and-so and and not standing sister so-and-so over here. Or I sit up here because, heaven forbid, I would never sit over there. Years ago, we had a woman come to our church and she had a little riff with somebody in our church and we we talked to her as elders and she said, oh, it's okay. I'm just not talking to her anymore. Wrong answer. That's what this whole thing is about. I have to examine myself. I've got to be right with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you're not right this morning, do not take this cup and this bread. It is not for you. Go instead and leave your gift and make it right with someone else. This should be a place that of all times, we should feel the closest to one another here at this table. Because what we're saying is we're all one body. One loaf, one cup, one Savior. It's Christ. So we come to remember him and to renew our love with one another. It is certainly a time of reorientation to evaluate our own lives. And so this morning, if you don't understand, let it pass you. Look at the symbolism. Ask questions. But let it go. There's no judgment here. But if we do understand this event as believers, our lives should start to be reorientated. Our desires, our dreams, our goals, our purpose what we're living for as we come to this table, ought to be confronted, evaluating our own lives. And when we do, the magnitude of this event will change us. It will change us. If we as believers can be serious about this event and understand the implications of what happened at Calvary and understand what we're doing to remember and to renew It will change us. Let me read just a short little paragraph here about the Lord's Supper and how it changed the church in the past. Listen to these words. It was on Wednesday, August 13th, 1727, that the Moravian Brethren congregation of Hernhut met for a special communion service at their German church. Times were extremely difficult for these brethren. Many of them had endured severe persecution for their faith, and many had laid down their lives You may recall that the Moravian Brother movement itself had sprung out of the martyrdom of John Hus, the great Bohemian reformer. Now, many of them had found refuge on the estate of a wealthy Christian, Count Zinzendorf. They had come from many different walks of life with differing opinions and ways of thinking. You might say a mutt. During the early years, harmony would not have been the most descriptive word for this gathering of believers. But then something happened, and it began around the Lord's table that Wednesday in 1727. God had been dealing with them about their self-will, their self-love, their judgmental spirits, and disobedience. And as they gathered around the table that day, they were overwhelmed with a sense of their own unworthiness in light of all God had done. For what seemed to be the very first time, they saw the wounds their Lord had endured and the blood he had shed for them. Count Zinzendorf described it this way. O head so full of bruises, so full of pain and scorn. He went on to say that there was a sense of the nearness of Christ that came in a single moment to all assembled. It is said that two of the members at work approximately 20 miles away, though unaware that the meeting was being held, became conscious of the same presence at the same moment. Some described it as another Pentecost. And observing what was soon to happen, perhaps this is the best appropriate description. for those who met around the Lord's table that day would never be the same. In later years, Count Zinzendorf described it as a time when they did not know whether they belonged to earth or had already gone to heaven. Just as the early church had done, these believers were soon to touch their world in a way that would or could not be explained only in terms of a revived people in the hands of their Lord. It would not be long before they would begin a 24-hour prayer chain that would last 100 years. These Moravian brethren would then reach out to continent after continent, people after people, with the glorious news of the saving life of Christ. And if you know of John Wesley, Wesley going to be a missionary to the Indians, was unconverted as a missionary, and on a a stormy ship, as he watched these Moravian believers, their calmness, their sense of peace, he knew he was lost and came to Christ, and later shook two continents for Christ. My friend, I'm not talking about Magic, I'm not talking about mysticism. I'm talking about getting back to the basics and what we're supposed to be doing. We are believers in Christ. who By his blood, we have been saved. We're redeemed, we're bought, we're purchased, we're beloved. He died for me. He died for you. And the first thing we do is follow him in believer's baptism We identify with him. We identify with his body. And then we follow the teachings. And this one, the only one, the only act of worship we're given instruction on is so that we can come together this morning to remember, to examine, to renew. And so may God help us to do just that as we gather around the Lord's table this morning. I'll ask the men to come to join me as we prepare to serve the elements.